This is a Faith FM podcast. You're listening to The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen, right across Australia, right here on Faith FM. Hello there, and thanks again for joining me once again. I'm Robbie Bergen, and you're listening to The Faith Experiment. And this is episode number 39. It's the first episode for 2022, so welcome to the show. This episode I'm calling Running Man Chasing God. Now, on this episode, I have a great book called Quick Bible Answers. This book is written by evangelist Kenneth Cox. This little booklet was written to provide biblical answers to 18 common questions. Questions like, who will see Jesus return? What must I do to be saved? And why hasn't God healed me? And there's many, many more questions So that are answered in this book. It's a great book. You want to get this book, and I'm going to give it out at the end of the show. To get this book, you will need to text today's code word, which you'll get during the show. You'll need to text it to the Faith Experiment number, 04888845311. So save this number in your phone now as the Faith Experiment number, 04888845311. And wait for today's code word. Well, I love hearing from you in the Faith Experiment, and I would love to hear from you today as we go to air with our first episode for the new year. Where are you listening to the Faith Experiment from today? Right now, where are you? And while you're at it, let me know how you went over the end of the year uh, holiday. Did you have a holiday? Did you go anywhere? Were you able to go anywhere? I'd love to hear from you. So text me on 04 or email me on Robbie at faithfm.com.au. Well, I want to give a big shout out to some of the Faith Experiment listeners who have texted in and left some comments. I've got Jesse here from South Australia who says, great listening to you, Robbie, on the Faith Experiment. Thank you very much for what you do. Well, thank you, Jesse, for tuning in. It's only because of listeners listening and engaging with the show that we're able to keep going here. So thank you. Got another text here from Lynn who says, Hi, Robbie. Love listening to you on the Faith Experiment. Well, thank you, Lynn. Again, it's because of listeners like you that keeps us going here on the Faith Experiment. And I've got a text here from Elena from South Australia. A lot of South Australians here today who says, God bless you, Robbie. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you, Elena. And a text here from my good old mate David from Perth in Western Australia who says, it's me again, David. Hi, David. Good to have you tuned in once again. Well, you can let me know what you're doing, where you're listening from by texting me 0488-45311 or email me on robbie at faithfm.com.au. Now, if you are joining me for the first time on The Faith Experiment, this is a show about faith and putting it into practice. It's about experimenting with faith. And so far on the show, I have been sharing with you my own personal journey of how I went from a non-believer to a faith experimenter. And I've shared with you ways to enhance your study of these ancient manuscripts we call the Bible today. We've looked at a series of your questions in a Q&A series. And I just have really enjoyed getting to know some of you through your questions and your feedback. And it's been fantastic. Well, as we start this episode, the first episode of 2022, I want to pick up a Sort of a sort of a whirlwind tour of a biblical theme in this episode. 
And it's a really interesting topic. In fact, for me, it's fascinated me for years. I've been on this faith experiment now. This is coming into my 20th year, and I've just been absolutely amazed at this topic that I'm going to share with you today. It comes from a, sort of a, a big picture view of all of these ancient manuscripts as a single picture. And I really think you're going to be amazed, just as I am every time I look at this. And as I told you in the intro, I'm calling this sort of time together today, this episode, I'm calling it The Running Man and The Chasing God. And it's going to give us a good foundation for our next couple of topics that I want to explore with you here on The Faith Experiment. Now, if you've missed any of the previous episodes and you want to catch up with some of the details, you want to hear of how I went from a non-believer to a faith experimenter, or you want to get those insights in how to get good quality um, uh, time spent in studying these ancient manuscripts, if you want any of these episodes, you can easily catch up with the Faith FM app. You can get it from your app store or you can go to faithfm.com.au, look under the podcasting section for the Faith Experiment And you can also find The Faith Experiment on all good podcasting platforms. So it's really easy to keep up to date. So go find the app, go find the podcast on one of your podcasting apps and subscribe to the show and you won't miss an episode. Well, as I said, on this episode, we're talking about a, a new sort of big picture view of a biblical narrative, which I'm calling Running Man Chasing God. Well, to get this sort of scene started, I want to take you in the ancient manuscripts to the book, which we call in the English translation, the book of Revelation. So Revelation is an interesting book. If you've listened to the faith experiment for a while now, you'll know that this book was instrumental in my journey of becoming a faith experimenter. It's a fantastic book. It's it's very, very well structured in its writing. Some people are terrified by this book. Some people are confused by it. For me, I absolutely love it. The way it's been written, it's been structured, the imagery, the poetry, it's such a fantastic book. Now, we're going to go to the last two chapters of the book Revelation. Revelation has 22 chapters, and we're going to look at chapter 21 and 22 very briefly here on this episode. And if you've got your Bible, I encourage you to follow along. If you're driving, obviously, just uh, keep, your, <laughs> keep your hands on the wheel and keep looking at the, at the windscreen. But if you are able to, pick up a Bible and follow along with me. This is Revelation chapter 21 and verse 1. This is what the Bible says. It says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. Now this is an interesting passage because it's making making this picture in our minds that there is this brand new uh, heaven location, this new earth location, and then it introduces this idea that there's no more sea. Now, for some people, they're freaked out that there's no more ocean, especially in a country like Australia where we love our ocean. We love to have the beaches and the waves and all the good vibes that go along with that. But in this text, it's saying that there will be no more sea. Now, some people go, oh, what? There's no sea in the new earth? Well, that's not exactly what this text is in in trying to communicate. In fact, it's not communicating that at all. You see, this idea of no more sea. See, John, in chapter 1 of this book, when he wrote the introduction to Revelation, he makes the point of stating that he is on an island as he writes this book. It's the island of Patmos. And this island of Patmos, the reason he is there is because he is being persecuted by the Roman Empire. He's been placed in this island 
to serve sort of as an island prison. And so for John, when he looks at the sea, if he looks south, and by the way, the island of Patmos is sitting in the Aegean Sea there in the Mediterranean, and if he looks south, all he will see is water. If he looks east, he sees water. He looks north, he sees water. He looks west, he sees water. You get the, you get the idea. And so for John, in this closing scene in the book of Revelation, as he sees a new heaven and a new earth, he makes this point. By the way, there's no more sea. Now, for John, the idea of the sea right there and then when he wrote the book is it is a sea that separates. It separates him from his family, from his church, from his mission. And so the sea represents separation. And in this final scene here in Revelation chapter 21, John is describing a time when he looks out and he sees that God has made all things new. Everything is restored and there is no more sea that separates, meaning that there's no more separation. In fact, that's exactly what we find as we move on to verse 2. It says, Then I saw, then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will be with them. He will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. I want you to notice this. In verse 3, John hears this voice and the voice is saying, listen, behold, the tabernacle of God. The word tabernacle literally just means dwelling place. The dwelling place of God is now with man on earth in the form of this new Jerusalem. And then it makes this point. It reiterates it three times. It says, the tabernacle of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. Did you get the picture? Three times in this verse, John is communicating three times that God will be with humanity. Humanity will be with God. And so the sea of separation, the sea that separates us from God, is no longer there. We are together. We can be face to face. In fact, if you go to chapter 22, Revelation, the very next chapter, and in verse 1 it says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the streets and on either side of the river was a tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there will be no more curse but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants shall serve him. I want you to notice very carefully this next verse, verse 4, Revelation 22, verse 4. It says, and they, that's God's servants, they shall see his face, and his name shall be written on their foreheads. So in the last two chapters of the book of Revelation that closes out the canon of Scripture, we see this remarkable picture. We see a perfect God. We see a perfect world. We see a perfect people. And we see that they are having perfect communion with God face to face. Now, if you were able to hold your Bible up, you would notice that if you held it right in front of you, on the last two chapters of the Bible, that would be on your right side of your Bible, The last two chapters are communicating this picture of perfect God, perfect world, perfect people, perfect communion. The only other place where we see that same picture 
is in the first two chapters of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. And that's on the left side of your Bible if you're holding it up in front of you. And in that same picture of Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see a perfect God, a perfect world, perfect people, and perfect communion. And this is setting us up for the the foundation of our topic today. In the Bible, there are two bookends to this entirety of Scripture, these, these ancient manuscripts bundled together. At the beginning, there's a perfect God, a perfect world, a perfect people, perfect communion. In the end, perfect God, perfect people, perfect world, perfect communion. But in between those two chapters, at the beginning of the Bible and at the end of the Bible, there is a picture of a running man and a chasing God. Well, it's time to take a short break now, but when we come back, we're going to continue looking at this theme of running man and a chasing God. And don't forget, coming up is today's code word, so make sure you stick around. You're listening to The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen, right across Australia, right here on Faith FM. Connect with us via text message on 04888-45311. That's 04888-45311. Double one, or send an email to Robbie at faithfm.com.au. Mary, did you know that your baby boy? Would one day walk on water Mary, did you know That your baby boy Would save our sons and daughters Did you know That your baby boy Has come to make you new And this child that you've delivered Will soon deliver you, Mary, did you know that your baby boy will give sight to a blind man? Mary, did you know that your baby boy will calm a storm with his hand? Did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod? When Kiss your little baby You kiss the face of God Oh Mary, did you know Oh, Mary, did you Did you know 
that your baby boy is Lord of all creation. Mary, did you know that your baby boy will one day rule the nations? Did you know that your baby boy is heaven's perfect lamb? And the sleeping child you're holding is a great I am. Oh, Mary, did you know This is The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen. Right across Australia, right here on Faith FM. Listen live or listen later. Get the Faith FM app from your app store today. Welcome back to The Faith Experiment. I'm your host, Robbie Bergen, and that was Mary Did You Know with Hannah Ellis. This is episode 39 of The Faith Experiment, and I'm calling this episode Running Man, Chasing God. And coming up is the co-word for today's free offer, so make sure you stick around. Well, we saw before the break how that in the last two chapters of the Bible, we find a picture of a perfect God, perfect people, in a perfect world, holding perfect communion. And I share with you how that the only other time in the entire canon of Scripture that we see that same picture is in the first two chapters of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. But something happens in between these two chapters, and we, we end up with humans running from God. And we find God chasing the humans. And this is the theme that I want to start off the new year with because I don't know where you are in your life today, where you are in your faith experiment. You know, I get emails and text messages all the time from from you as listeners telling me and sharing with me some of your struggles in experimenting with faith and some of your challenges and some of your desires. And I want to give you this this study today on this episode to show you that no matter where you are in your faith experiment, God is chasing. Now, that might sound intimidating to some of you, but stay tuned to get the bigger picture. Well, I want to take you to those first two chapters. We went to Revelation in the last two chapters before the break, and now I want to take you to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. And I want to just highlight some of the interesting similarities that we find between these two sections of this ancient manuscript. In Genesis chapter 1 and in verse 1, I think most people would recognize these words. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, we saw in the last two chapters of the Bible that God recreates a heaven and an earth. So, we're being taken in Revelation back to the beginning. And in this passage of this creative act of the heavens and the earth, we notice six times God makes this remark after he creates things on each day of creation. For example, in day one on verse four, it says, And God saw the light that he created, and it was good. And so we see this picture that God does something and he looks at it and he goes, it's good. He then moves on and creates the next thing and says, it was good. And the next day it was good. And the next day it was good. And when you get all the way down to day six in verse 31, 
it says that then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. And so the evening and the morning were the sixth day. And so we enter with this picture that God has created the perfect world in these six days, a perfect God, a perfect world. And then we find that he creates these these perfect people. And in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, it says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And then it says that God planted a, a garden called the Garden of Eden, the perfect home for his perfect people. He creates the perfect companion, um, the wo- the woman here, which we know later to be called Eve. And so everything is set. God comes down in the cool of the day and spends time communing with his creation. But as I alluded to at the beginning of this this episode, something changes, something interferes. And I want to take you to that scene in Genesis chapter 3. We have the introduction of this, this character, this medium called a serpent who's acting out as a puppet, so to speak, for that arch-rebel, Lucifer himself, that we read about in Ezekiel and in Isaiah, and we get these insights that he was the the, the nicknamed dragon that drew one-third of the angels of heaven down to the earth, as Revelation chapter 12 tells us. So here in chapter 3, this this enemy of God, this rebel, he's working through the medium of a snake, And he has a conversation with this woman, this perfect woman in this perfect garden on a perfect earth. And he turns to her and he asks her, aren't you able to eat of every tree in this garden? And in verse 2 it says, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Verse 4, then the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God has known the days that you will eat, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it. She also gave it to her husband, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. So here's the act. Here's the act that sets the scene for this great chase. This is where the moment uh, intersects with the perfect God, a perfect people, a perfect world, a perfect communion. Something changes with this act. And at that moment, they don't have a euphoric feeling of they've accomplished God's state. In fact, it's quite opposite. They feel ashamed. They feel scared. They feel nervous because now... They know that something has changed in the universe. And in the very next verse, I want you to notice what happens. The stage is set for our great chase. And as God comes down, notice God's not fleeing from them. He's not handing them to a lightning bolt to destroy them. In verse 8, the very next verse, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. Notice this. As soon as they have rebelled and joined the the anarchy against the government of God, the minute that they do that, they sense that they need to flee from God. They need to run from God. But notice what God has done. God has come down looking for them chasing after them. And this is what he says. He says, Then the Lord God called to Adam and said, Adam, where are you? And so he said, 
I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I am naked and I hid myself. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I've commanded you you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So notice what's taken place here. At a point in time, the arch enemy of God, Lucifer, who's acting here through this medium of the snake, he comes down and he deceives God's perfect creation. And as a result, they have sensed that something's changed, something physically has changed because of their sin, something spiritually has changed, something mentally. Now they're experiencing fear. Now they're experiencing blame. Now they're experiencing shame and guilt and nakedness. And their their response to this is to run, to run away. And so God comes down and asks the questions. And when they respond, he doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't chastise them. He turns his attention to Lucifer. So notice what God says. In verse 14, he says, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and eat dust all the days of your life. And here it is, verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I want you to notice very, very carefully what God has done here. In verse 15, as God is talking to the enemy here, the ultimate enemy behind this fall, behind this this sorrow, this suffering, this, this fear, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. God is stepping into this situation. Man has already missed the mark. They're now running from God, but God steps in and says, I'm going to take control here. I am going to do something. I'm going to put enmity between you, that's talking to Satan here, and the woman. You see, humanity can do nothing to fix the problem now. There's nothing that they can do to redeem themselves from this rebellion. It's game over for them. If God does nothing... Humanity would be eternally lost as soon as they sin. That's the end of it. It's kind of like two poles on a magnet. When the poles are flipped, instead of being attracted to each other, they are now repelled by each other. And that's what's happened here. Humans, instead of being attracted to God, they're now repelled by God because of their rebellion. They're, we're, we Look, let's make it personal. By nature... We can't stand the purity of God. We can't stand his holiness. We can't stand his kindness. Why? Because we're selfish and it's a living rebuke to who and what we are by nature. And so God recognizes this and he steps in. He steps straight in to solve the problem because he knows that it is impossible for humans to come back to him without him doing something. You know, when you are at your furthest from God, I want you to know this. I want you to remember this. God is right there, chasing right after you. He knows that you can do nothing to come back to him. And so he's going to step in and he's going to do it for you. But notice what he does do. In this passage, it says he's going to place something, put something between us and sin and the father of sin. 
And that's something he's going to put in there is called enmity. And what is enmity? Well, enmity comes from a Hebrew word, which is the strongest form of hatred you can muster. God is going to place the strongest form of hatred between his people and sin. Now, notice what he didn't do here. He didn't just go and put love between humanity and himself. He puts hatred between humanity and sin. And the way he does that is remarkable. It's brilliant. It's genius. Because if God had have just said, I'm going to fix this problem, I'm going to force you guys to love me, I'm going to put love between you and me. If God did that, it would take away the greatest gift he has ever given humanity. And that is the freedom to choose. God wants us to love him and to worship him because we love him, not because we're being forced to. And so God, in being God, having perfection in every thought and every action, he places hatred for sin between us and it. It's so genius because by doing that, he actually gives us the power to leave sin, but also leaves us with the freedom to choose whether or not we come back to him. He's restored our power to choose, knowing full well that for many of us, we will not use this gift of free choice to choose him. You know, look at our world today. Look at our country today. We are seeing force used everywhere, especially in the context of these mandates. I'm not talking about the jab itself and your view on it, whether you think it's good or bad. I don't really care about that. But this idea of mandating somebody means I'm taking away your freedom to choose. And that is exactly what God is against. And so God is giving us a picture here in this passage that despite wherever you are, wherever I am, whatever our addictions are, whatever our failures are, whatever we are unable to change ourselves, he's there. He's standing right there with us, and he is just desiring to put something between us and all those negative things, those emotions, those thoughts, those feelings. He wants to give us hatred for those, to enable us the freedom to choose. The question is, what are we going to do with that freedom of choice? He's prepared to give it. In fact, he has given it. But what are we going to do with it? Well, it's time to take a short break. Now, when we come back, we'll continue this look at the running man and the chasing God. I'll be right back after this with The Faith Experiment. The Faith Experiment is made possible because of people like you. If you enjoy what we are doing, please consider supporting us by making a donation on our website at faithfm.com.au slash donate. Every time I try to make it on Every time I try to stand, I start to fall And all those only roads that I've traveled on There was Jesus When the life I built came crashing to the ground And when the friends I had were nowhere to be I couldn't see it then, but I could see it now There was Jesus 
to The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen right across Australia, right here on Faith FM. Welcome back to The Faith Experiment. I'm your host, Robbie Bergen, and that was There Was Jesus by Cain. This is episode 39 of The Faith Experiment, and I'm calling this episode Running Man Chasing God. And coming up is the co-op for today's free offer, so make sure you stick around. And before the break, I've been sharing with you this theme of running man chasing God. And it's a picture, it's a biblical picture a narrative picture from the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, all the way back to the first two chapters of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. The only locations in the entire Bible we find a picture of a perfect God, a perfect people, a perfect world in perfect communion. And as I've suggested, everything in between these two chapters is a picture of a running man or or humanity fleeing from God, but God is chasing after us. Before the break, I share with you how in Genesis chapter 3, the whole picture is broken of this perfect world and this perfect people in perfect communion with the perfect God. It changes. And it changes because of selfishness, because of rebellion. And so as soon as this rebellion takes place, something tangible changes in the universe. Emotionally, we are different. Mentally, we are different. Physically, we are different. We sense our nakedness. We feel shame. We feel guilt. And our eyes are opened to things that we weren't meant to see. Things like death, things like suffering, things like pain. And so immediately God comes down. And as he does, humanity begins its running from God. They run and hide themselves. But God calls out saying, where are you? Where are you? 
And when they finally respond, God comes down and he says, listen, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to place hatred, enmity between you and sin and Satan and evilness and wickedness. I'm going to place hatred between you. Because if I don't place that hatred between you, then you will forever be tied as a slave is chained to the wall, so will you be chained to sin, and it will have dominion over you. And so God promises to give this hatred, to place it. But I want you to notice very carefully on the wording of this passage, because God does something remarkable. He says in verse 15, he says, I will put enmity, that's the hatred between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. And then it says, he shall bruise your head. I want you to notice that this enmity takes on the the pronoun of a person. It becomes a him. It's a him who is bruised. It's a him who bruises the head of sin, the leadership of sin and Satan in your life. But in so doing, this enmity receives a wounded or bruised heel. There's a fight that will take place in order to provide you with this hatred. Now, all biblical scholars agree that this enmity that is talked about in this verse is the prophecy, the first prophecy of the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so what God is doing here from the very beginning of this rebellion, in chasing after the running human family, God promises that he will send someone, a him, the enmity that will provide the right ingredients for you to break free from the power of sin in your life. And you will be given the freedom to choose, to choose to come back to God. You see, the reason why sin is such an ugly thing is because it separates us from God. In Isaiah chapter 59, and in verse 1 and 2, the Bible says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. God can save you wherever you are today in 2022. God can save you. There's no question about that. It says that his ear is not heavy, that he cannot hear you. He's always listening. But the next verse, in verse 2, it says, But your iniquity has separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. So notice, it is sin, it's our iniquity that separates us from God. This is why God hates sin so much. You know, there are preachers out there today who preach that sin is okay. Just ask for forgiveness and sin is okay. No, sin is a horrible thing. Sin costs life. Sin causes separation. And God hates sin. He loves sinners, but he hates sin. And his longing desire is to remove sin so that you have the freedom to choose to come back to him. You know, many times over the years in this faith experiment, people have said to me, you know, Robbie, I wish I had your experience because I just don't feel like God's very close to me at the moment. And, you know, I try to say this as as gently as possible, but I ask you this question. If you feel that you're not close to God, then my question to you is, who moved? Who moved in this relationship to make their distance so that you don't feel close to God? I can tell you one thing. It's not God. God hasn't moved. The Bible says that it's our sin. And it doesn't just describe it as sin. It describes it as iniquity. And iniquity in the original language means rebellion. It's our rebellion 
that has caused us to move in the relationship with God. But God is still desiring to change that. He wants to give you hatred for the things that you're rebelling against so that you can come back. So in this very first passage, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God has given us a forecast, a, a foretaste of the coming Messiah, the Deliverer, who will provide us with this hatred. But I want you to notice that this hatred comes at a cost. He will be bruised. And again, all theologians and all scholars agree that this is the veiled reference to the death of Jesus on the cross. You see, later in the same chapter, we described that the first sacrifice takes place in order to accept by faith that this enmity will come and that he will give you the power to choose to come back to God or not. In order to have faith in that system, you need to sacrifice life must be shed because you get to live because these sacrifices die. See, the Bible teaches in the New Testament that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And so right there and then at the gate in Eden, in this perfect world, the first blood is shed, representing the forecoming of this Messiah, this Deliverer that will provide the way back to God. You see, man is running, but God is chasing. He has established a a way in which to restore this freedom of choice, this power to choose. He's provided a sacrificial system. Something will take the place of sinful humanity. And that something, as we find out later in the story, is God's own self in the person of his son. And so the chase is on. God is chasing And man is running. Now, the next major milestone we see is in Exodus. In Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, the Bible says, it's God speaking to Moses here on the mountain. He says, Moses, let the children of Israel make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. You see, God's longing desire of his heart is to dwell with people. In Eden, he was dwelling with people in a perfect world, with a perfect people in a perfect communion. But because of sin and because of our rebellion and our running away from him, it's created a separation and God is chasing us, wanting to restore that. He tried to restore it with the sacrificial system in Eden by shedding the blood of those lambs was a testimony that you wanted to have communion with him again. And when it got down to Eden, God says to humanity, I have lived with you and dwelt with you through these sacrifices, but now I want to live with you closer. I want a sanctuary. That's a tent. I want a tent that I may dwell among you. And so they built him a tent. And in that tent, there was a special compartment called the holy place and another compartment after that called the most holy place. And in the most holy place, God said, I will dwell there with my very presence. And he presented himself there in the form of the Shekinah glory. This was the closest God had dwelt with humans for more than 2,000 years. You see, in Eden, God would come down and dwell with us. But for those 2,000 years, he was dwelling in the form of these these sacrifices on mountaintops and and, and sweet-smelling savors presented with these sin offerings. But now, through the sanctuary, through the tent, through the tabernacle, he is able to dwell with his people among them. This is the closest that God had dwelt, but this was not close enough. As we come down through the centuries to the book of Isaiah, God speaking through Isaiah makes this claim. In Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, he says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, 
a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Absolutely remarkable. Now, we all know and we understand now that this is the prophecy about the birth of Jesus. But what's absolutely astounding is that this word Emmanuel, the name that God gives himself, means God with us or God dwelling with us, which is the same imagery we see there in that tent in the wilderness. Make a sanctuary that I may dwell among you. That's Emmanuel. And so God is showing again and again and again. He was, he was closer after sin in these animal sacrifices on hilltops by the patriarchs. But that wasn't close enough. His longing desire is to be with us. And so about 2,000 years later, when he comes down to Moses and the children of Israel in the wilderness on their way into the promised land, he says, okay, enough is enough. Build me a tent. I want to dwell in the tent among you. And that dwelling among you is Emmanuel, God with us. And for the next couple of hundred years, God dwells in a tent in the midst of the, the, the children of Israel, in the midst of his family, in the midst of his creation. But this isn't what God wants. This isn't what he had in Eden. He wants to be closer. And so the time has come when he says, I, that's it. I'm going to give you a sign. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you will call him God with us, Emmanuel. And friends, that's Jesus. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, it, the angel Gabriel comes to Joseph and says, Joseph, you're, you're betrothed. Mary is going to bring forth a son and you will call him Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. That's what Gabriel said to Joseph. And so you can see this picture all the way through scripture of God chasing, trying to get closer and closer and closer to humans. When Jesus walks on the scene, he is God with us. He is Emmanuel. He is the walking sanctuary. He is the promised enmity. He is God with us. You see, When you look at Jesus, you see how God is with us sinners. He says, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. Why? Because sin separates us. We're not going to be separated. We want to be together. When he turns to the sick, we see how Jesus deals with them. He says, your sins are forgiven. Get up and walk. He's come to remove sin, that sea of separation that John talks about. Because his longing desire, get this, Jesus' longing desire, his heart's desire, the Father's heart's desire, the Spirit's heart desire is to be with us. That's his desire. And so when we look at Jesus, at his life and teachings, we see God with us? How does he deal with the outcast? How does he feel for the unclean? How does he feel for the sinner, for the child, for the learned? In Jesus, we see God with us. And you know what happens when we see Jesus and we see his purity? We see his love, his kindness, his tenderness, his compassion. Do you know what happens? We soften. And as we soften, we become more inclined to want to be around Jesus. But Jesus didn't come to give us love. He came to give us hatred. And so how does he do that? If you've ever read the gospel stories, as in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in the last few chapters of every one of those gospel books, you will read the most horrible scene ever recorded in the history of humanity, probably even the history of eternity in whatever dimensions are out there or galaxies or universes, whatever it is. What I'm trying to say is, There is nothing more vulgar, more violent than the crucifixion of Jesus, the judgment of Jesus, the rejection of Jesus, the death of Jesus. And if you, if you follow Jesus through those three and a half years, 
and you saw how he treated people, how he cared for people, how he had compassion for people. When, when you follow him through that journey and you get to that closing scene and you see what sin does, I'm not talking about the Jews or the high priest or the Roman governors. I'm talking about sin. Sin was at work through all of those agencies, the same way that sin was working through that snake. It was an agency. When you see what sin does and how it treats sympathy, kindness, lovingness, peacefulness, gentleness, when you see what sin does and how it ultimately, ultimately hates all things that are good, when you see that, guess what happens? In the deepest bowels of your your realms and recesses of your heart, There is something that starts to grow, and that something that grows is anger. It's righteous anger. It's the anger over how can there be such clear unjustness. You know, if you watch the news, and these days I don't even bother, to be honest, because you only get one story, and it's COVID this, COVID that, COVID this, COVID that. But when you watch the news, and you see those stories from time to time, like I just saw one this week, a nine-year-old girl in New South Wales, schoolgirl, she's had nine rotations of the sun. That's it. She celebrated life nine times. When you see the story that that little girl had her life ended by some monster, some selfish, sinful monster, and left that little girl's body in a barrel on a river somewhere in New South Wales, when you you see that story, you should feel hatred. You should feel anger. Righteous indignation. And that is what we feel as horrible, sinful, selfish humans when we have just the slightest sympathy for another fellow human that didn't have as much chance as we have had. We feel it. Whenever I see these stories where kids have been murdered or abused or whatever it is, there's anger. Now, this is exactly what happens when you follow the life and teaching of Jesus and then you see the unjust treatment that he receives. Anger starts. And if you direct your anger at the individual players in the story, you've missed the point. The point is not the people. The point is sin. And the anger for sin creates hatred for sin. You can't love something that you're angry at. And so once you have this anger developing, this hatred for sin developing, do you know what? You would rather die than side with sin. And that is exactly the theme of the Bible. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 20, Moses is talking to the the children of Israel, and they say, Moses, uh, don't let God talk to us because we're afraid of him. Moses turns to them and says, don't be afraid of God. God's just come down here to see whether you fear him or not. And then he says what the fear of God is. The fear of God is to depart from evil. King David, Solomon, Job, Peter, Paul, John, you name it. They all had the same theme. Sin is horrible. Sin manifests itself in addictions, in, in selfishness. It takes from everyone else around. Sin is horrible because sin's ultimate goal Sin's ultimate destination is death. And so God is chasing us down because we keep running straight into the face of this death. Oh, yeah, we we get to uh, evade death for a while. We feel like we cheated death because we lived 60 years or 70 years or, or 80 years. But in the end, death gets us because sin leads to death. And as we are running full speed towards that, God is chasing after us as a loving father as fast as he can to try and pull us back, pull us out. And so he came closer than he's ever been in the person of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. But you know what? 
that's not close enough. God wants to be in us. You see, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that our bodies are the temple of God. The longing desire of God's heart is to be with us. In Revelation chapter 3, I love this verse. This verse is one of my favorites. It says in chapter 3, verse 21, it says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame him and sat down with my father on his throne. Friends, listen to that. Listen to that verse. The longing desire of Jesus' heart, of the Father's heart, is for you to be where he is, sitting with him on his throne. That's it. That's the longing desire of God. He, he has been chasing, he has been chasing, he has been chasing. And right now we live in a world that's taking us as fast as it can away from all things of God. Now, I don't know where you are in your faith experiment today, but if you'd like to get in touch with somebody, just to ask questions or to, to seek guidance on what to do next in this faith experiment, wherever you are in it, then I'd encourage you to send me an email to robbie at faithfm.com.au or send me a text on 04888 and I will arrange to put you in contact with somebody in your local area that you'll be able to connect with that will be able to help you in your faith experiment to stop running and to allow God to take control, to give you the power to break these challenges in your life, these addictions, this, this desire for sin and allow you to start living and experimenting with a quality relationship with God today. Now, as mentioned at the top of the show, I have this great book called Quick Bible Answers. It's a fantastic book that deals with eight common questions about the Bible. Questions like, who will see Jesus Christ return and what must be to be saved? And I like this one, why hasn't God healed me yet? And there's many, many more. Now, if you'd like to get today's free offer, all you need to do is to text today's code word hash FE39. That's the hash symbol or the pound key followed by FE for faith experiment and number 39 as in episode 39, hash FE39. Nothing else. That's just it. Text that to 04888-45311. That's 04888-45311. That's the code word hash FE39. Text that to the number and the Faith Firm Giver Bot will reply to you asking for some details and we'll get that free book out to you as soon as possible. Well, that's all for now. I'll catch you next week at the same time right here on Faith FM for the next episode of The Faith Experiment. I'll see you then. If you have enjoyed this episode of The Faith Experiment, please help us get the word out by sharing our podcast with your friends and family. And don't forget to like us on Facebook. 